Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So today we're talking about online abuse and measuring it. So no pun today. Womp womp. Sorry. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So today we're talking about a paper that is looking at online abuse in uh, a number of different places. One of the big places is Wikipedia. Well, so this specific paper is just looking at Wikipedia. Obviously, online abuse is something that happens in many different places and, mm-hmm. and you know, so but we're just talking within the context of Wikipedia. And this paper is kind of interesting. It just came out a couple weeks ago. This is a collaboration between some folks at Jigsaw, which is one of the sort of sister companies of Google, um, but with a little bit more of a, I think, social good mission than, um, you know, Google proper, maybe. Um, They collaborated with the Wikimedia Foundation. And so the general idea here is, is there a way that we can reliably measure online abuse uh, within the context of Wikipedia edits? So basically people being mean to each other uh, when editing Wikipedia. Right. With the idea being that in order to study that and to try to understand what the effects of that kind of behavior are, first thing you need to do is measure it. Um, It's funny because I don't really think of Wikipedia as being a place where people interact at all because I I don't make edits to Wikipedia. But really, if you work with any kind of forum software or wiki software, all of the content is made by other humans. And whenever you get a bunch of humans interacting in a space, there's bound to be some sort of... um, well, especially online, some sort of bullying because you have some sort of anonymity and kind of a separation also from the other person's humanity when they're just a a handle or a username on on your screen. Well, that is actually an interesting point is raising the idea of anonymity because within the context of Wikipedia and a lot of other um, forums as well, there's the idea that you can have a, a profile that's tied to Uh, like a registered profile so that people know who you are. Maybe it's even tied to your sort of like real identity. Uh, Like um, you can imagine something like Facebook uh, where they strongly encourage users to to have profiles that are like traceable back to them in real life, so to speak. And then there's also on the other extreme, there's completely anonymous forums. And so one of the questions that they were trying to answer was the understanding of does it actually make a difference if you're anonymous? Are people more abusive? The idea being that they're hiding behind this kind of screen of anonymity and they feel like they can get away with saying more stuff. Because mm-hmm. that, that makes sense to me, at least as a story. Whether it's actually supported by data is maybe a different question. And so we'll just start to jump into some of these conclusions because I think they're they're kind of interesting. And, and then maybe we can circle back to the methodology in a second. But since we're on this discussion of anonymity, it turns out that it does make a difference, at least in the study that they looked at here. Of the comments that the researchers were looking at, if a comment um, was associated with an anonymous account, then there was about a 3% prevalence of attacks. But across the corpus as a whole, the prevalence of attacks was about 0.8%. And for registered users, it was one half of 1%. So the first oh, thing wow. that, yeah, so the first thing to point out here is number one, the rate of abuse in absolute numbers is is quite low, under 5%, even within, we would think, kind of the most, one of the more prone groups uh, for, for potentially being like kind of abusive, namely anonymous users. Like 3% is still just not that much. Mm-hmm. And across the population as a whole, it's still under 1%. So there's not a whole lot of these, but you can imagine that depending on exactly how they're distributed, uh, that perhaps they can still have a pretty big effect that we might want to study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also because 
a lot of uh, abusive comments are high impact comments, whereas non-abusive comments might not be as high impact if you're hurting someone's feelings or if you're insulting someone or any of that. So even if the number, if, even if the amount of abuse is low, the impact of the abuse is higher than you know the percentage might indicate. Well, sure. And I think that's part of the reason for, for writing this paper in the first place is, mm -hmm. again, how can we study this? And one of the specific things that they mentioned as a, a topic for further discussion is trying to understand the impact that abuse might have on people who are on the receiving end of it. So if somebody says something that's really rude to you on Wikipedia, maybe that makes you less likely to contribute in the future. But what we should probably do at this point is circle back a little bit and talk about the methodology here, because um, the individual conclusions themselves in this paper, like they're interesting, but I think uh, one of the significant contributions of this paper is just figuring out how you can uh, come up with a way of measuring abuse on Wikipedia. Right. The way these researchers do it is kind of a, a smart combination of some some crowdsourced comments and then like a machine learning classifier that they build with those uh, the crowdsource labels. So they have a bunch of uh, Wikipedia edits and comments that they have gotten from the Wikimedia Foundation. And then they use Crowdflower, which is one of these crowdsourcing websites where you can get a number of people to actually go in and hand label comments as abusive or not. And there were a few different ways that they asked annotators to label comments based on exactly like what kind of abuse they think it might be. Um, the idea being that like me attacking you directly might be one kind of abuse and me attacking like another user but like toward you is a different kind of abuse and whatever that there, there might be some interesting distinctions there and then if you only have one person at crowdflower who's labeling each one of these comments that you're giving to them then there's the potential that maybe somebody isn't paying a whole lot of attention or that there's some ambiguity about certain comments about whether they're really abusive or not, or if so, how abusive they are. So right. they had a number of different uh, annotators who, you know, they were getting like multiple different measurements for each one of the comments that they annotated. So then you start to have a little bit of redundancy and a little bit more confidence in the labels that you're making. So how did they actually do the labeling of this? Were they doing kind of a Boolean, like the true, this is abusive or false, it's not? Or were they doing more of a, a sliding scale or a range? Like on a scale of zero to 10, how abusive is this? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. So they actually tried it both ways. And here's why I think this is, this is kind of cool is that then you can take both types of data. So I think what they actually did was they asked the people on Crowdflower to do from zero to 10. And then it's really easy to just put a threshold at let's say five and say, if it's above five, right. then you know that's a one. And if if it's below five, that's a zero. But you make a good point that an, ab an abusive comment that's a six is probably qualitatively different than an abusive comment that's a nine or a 10. And so one of the questions that they had as researchers was, is our intuition about this, um, you know, there being like different degrees of abuse, is that is that borne out by the data? Is there something a little bit richer that we can get out of the data if we ask for something from a, a scale of zero to 10 or one to 10? versus one and zero. And so they actually, one of the first things that they wanted to do with this data once they had a bunch of labeled examples was to actually build a classifier and, and try to use that classifier to tell if they could identify more abusive comments you know, without actually having humans there to label them. And one of the ways that they evaluated them is you have some kind of holdout or test validation set. And you see how well your classifier is doing on that validation set. And so if you train your classifier to go from 
zero to 10. Again, you can kind of stick a threshold onto that and you can say if it's above a five, then that counts as a one. And if it's below a five, that counts as a zero. That the model that was actually built and trained that way did better than the model that was just trained on the binary data. So the fact that you have a wider range of labels in the one in the format of the data when it's zero to 10, one to 10, is something that the machine learning algorithm is actually able to pick out and make a little mm. bit of use of, and, and it comes up with better predictions as a result. Oh, that's neat. This seems like a really fundamentally difficult problem, though, um, maybe not specifically for this training set of data, which is probably mostly English, I'm guessing, but being able to uh, to detect, basically, this is detecting sentiment, right? So being able to detect sentiment across different languages seems like a, a, a tricky thing. Do you know if we're, were they sticking just to uh, comments with uh, from one language, or were they... They were, yeah. So one yeah. of the things that they asked their annotators to do on Crowdflower was to tell them if there was a, a comment that wasn't in English, and then they would mm -hmm. throw it out of the, of the corpus if a lot of annotators marked it that way. Got it. That makes sense, because you don't want to try and solve all the problems at once. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you collect all of these comments, you collect a set of labels for those comments, uh, you use that to train a model, and then you can take the model and, and assess you know, any biases it might have, figure out how good your model is, and then uh, when you use that model to make predictions about new cases, then you have some idea about how those predictions might tell you something about what's actually going on in the real world. And so then you can take those predictions about what's going on in the real world and you can learn something. And so that's sort of the back half of this paper, um, which I think is kind of fun. Like they're just starting to do some of these studies here. Um, so these were some of the, the most basic questions that you might think of asking. So one of the things that they looked at is uh, Wikipedia has a, a blocking mechanism. So there's like moderators who can actually block users who are being abusive. So one of the questions is, you know, what's sort of how tightly interrelated are the actual abusive comments and the people who get uh, reported or blocked, does it look like the reporting and the blocking is is being effective, let's say, in like trying to take care of abuses going on on the site? And it, it looks like, you know, there definitely is evidence that people who are getting blocked very often for abusive comments are, are making abusive comments, but there's also a pretty clear evidence that there's a lot of people who are saying things who are abusive who aren't getting blocked. So it does motivate some additional research that you would probably want to do to try to have better mechanisms for catching that, you know, because the human intervention is clearly not completely taking care of the problem. Another thing they look at is the distribution, and I, th I thought this was one of the more interesting things, the distribution of abuse as it comes from certain users. So the question here is, you know, do you have like a few power abusers who are responsible oh, for, you know, a vast <laughs> amount of the bad behavior? Is it relatively evenly spread amongst mm -hmm. maybe a, a, a core group of people that might be like fairly large, but compared to the entire set of editors is still relatively small? Is it spread evenly throughout the, the population. The conclusion that they were able to arrive at tentatively is that according to um, a metric they calculate, it's called the editor toxicity level. Uh, so this is basically a way of, of calibrating or measuring how toxic an individual user seems to be in terms of mm -hmm. like, you know, <laughs> them being really mean to other users. Using that as a metric, they, they found that 34% or, or sorry, 34 users. So these are 34 people 
have a toxicity level of more than 20. So this is a comparatively very, very high toxicity level, very small number of people. And taken together, they're responsible for almost 9% of the attacks, which isn't 9% might not sound like a huge fraction, but when you think of how many people are contributing to Wikipedia, which is like hundreds of thousands, uh, right. the fact that 34% right. of the, or, or gosh, I keep saying 34% because 34 seems like 34 absurd. people. 34 people. 34 people are responsible for uh, 9% of the attacks on, on you know, the entire wow. website. That's like one in 5,000. Oh, doing the... Like, the, I, I just yeah. kind of did fuzzy math, assuming, like, 200,000 people or... Uh, who knows? Um, but, yeah, that's, that's like, one in 10,000 is responsible for... I don't know. Do the math. But a, a lot. A lot of the attacks. <laughs> Punching above their weight, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Which kind of makes you wonder, like, how are these people even still editing Wikipedia? But, like, whatever. But by and large, I mean, the the other thing that you should keep in mind here is that more than 90% of the abuse is, is not coming from this core group of people. So mm. if you wanted to come up with an easy fix here, I think that was one of the other conclusions of this paper, like preliminary conclusions anyway. You know, there's still a lot of like studies to be done here. But the idea that, you know, there's just a core group of troublemakers who are causing all of the trouble, that's definitely not the case, right? There's a core group of people who are who are causing a lot of it, relatively speaking, to how many of them there are. And I'm sure, you know, there was probably a conversation at Wikimedia about what, if anything, can be done to, like, address it if it, it seems like there are a few people who are, you know, really making it difficult. But the other big point is that there are a lot of people who are doing smaller amounts of being mean to one another. Yeah, it's the long tail problem, right? You've got maybe a chunk that you could pretty easily deal with by by blocking them or banning them or, or whatever. Um, but then there's a much longer tail of people who are, maybe their toxicity rating is 10 or five or three, but they're still causing a, a, you know, a significant amount of damage in terms of the overall number of attacks. Right, right, which makes sense. You know, I, I generally am of the opinion that if there are problems that are easy to solve, they're, they're usually already solved. And so th- mm. the ones that are left very often feel like they're they're kind of the thorny ones. And, and this is a good case in point. Um, if it were easy to solve, then we wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be writing papers about it. We would just figure out who the, like, 10 jerks are and you kick them off Wikipedia and everybody goes back to their lives. Um, but it is a little more complicated than that. And so, again, I think one of the significant contributions of this paper is just laying out an exact procedure for actually coming up with like a good, well-modeled data set here that allows you to understand the the distributions of these abusive attacks and then figure out what kinds of interventions, if any, you might want to apply to it. Again, if you want to change something, the first thing you have to do is measurement, measure it. And so the, the measurement component of this, I think, is also like really significant and, and shouldn't be understated. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. 
thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.